Amen. I'm wondering if you, as you entered the building today, <clears throat> if you were shocked by anything as you made your way in. I want you to think for a moment and retrace your steps and think, okay, as I made my way in, did you see anything or notice anything that seemed offensive to you? Something that caught your attention that perhaps is oftentimes as a symbol is quite offensive to many people of the world in the last two millennia. Of course, what I'm talking about is the symbol of the cross. We not only have a cross on the exterior of our building here, which by the way, don't get near it. It's uh, precariously perched there, and so uh, that's why they don't want anybody going near it. Uh, but uh, it will be replaced if it ever comes down. Uh, we also have a cross here. And I would imagine some of us who are here today, I'm just curious, how many of us own a piece of jewelry that had some sort of cross that's part of either necklace or earrings or something? Okay, many of us do. A chain around your neck. It's interesting because you think about this, how our opinions, our viewpoints are so at, at odds with the kind of thinking and the kind of perspective that Paul understood so many people in that time and of that particular era, that they, it was incomprehensible that we would meet in a building that had a cross on the, on, the, on the outside and in the inside, and that people would wear symbols of the cross. Because to the educated, first century, civilized people, they would think that is incomprehensible. How in the world would anybody do that? And because so many of us have adopted this different kind of attitude than what would be common at the time Paul wrote it, I think that we don't get the kind of, of uh, impact that this passage should have for us. And the passage I'm talking about is Galatians chapter 6. So please find your way in your Bible. If you have a pew Bible, it's 1389, page 1389. If you have your tablet or your phone or whatever you're using, uh, your Bible, Galatians 6.14. I'm going to begin in verse 11, just to reviewing where we were last week, and then I'd like to focus our attention on verse 14. Beginning in verse 11, see with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. We said last time that Paul picks up the stylus, he's picking up the pen as it were, and he's writing now in his own handwriting, which was different than the handwriting of his professional secretary that he was using. Those who desire to make a good showing in the flesh try to compel you to be circumcised simply by, simply that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. But those who are circumcised do not even keep the law themselves, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But may it never be that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Now our text here this morning, as we said last time, is part of a conclusion of this epistle, a letter that's been written to the Galatians. And in this conclusion, Paul here is contrasting the only two approaches to God in all of the religions of the world. There, are, there is Christianity which celebrates and which glories in the divine accomplishments that God has wrought through Jesus Christ. The other 
system or the other religious approach to God that includes any and all other religions involves the process or the idea of human achievement in working oneself or becoming acceptable to God by what we do or don't do. We strive to please God by human effort. And these are the two fundamental different approaches to God. And Paul is boiling it all down to show these are the critical issues. Don't miss it. And last week we looked and examined the erroneous beliefs of many of these types of uh, religions, these man-centered religions. <clears throat> we looked at some of their questionable motives. But this morning I wanted to focus and examine really the crux of the Christian faith. And I use the word their crux on purpose, because crux is really from the word cross. The center of Christianity is the message of the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Look at that verse. Paul says, I'm not going to boast about anything except I'm going to boast about the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now what does he mean by boast here? Some of you may have a translation that says glory. Some of you may have a translation that talks about rejoicing. Or somehow uh, there is a sense of finding, uh, praising God. He says, what I'm doing is I'm celebrating, I'm glorying, I am boasting about the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he does so without any hesitation, without any sense of, of, uh, of, of concern about affirming that, because what we're going to look at with this boast, I want us to think about this amazing boast that he's making. I want to consider three aspects of boasting in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. What is involved in glorying in the gospel of grace? And the first point I want us to consider as we look at verse 14 is that there is a surprising boast here in Paul's comments. If we are to grasp how shocking this statement is by Paul when he wrote it, then you need to understand the background, you need to understand the perspective of those who were reading it in the time of his culture. Among Roman citizens, crucifixion was an effective means of capital punishment. For the kind of people that the Romans considered to be the scum of the earth. You see, the Romans believed and highly had refined this, this uh, ability to put people to death by capital punishment by means of crucifixion. They, they would take a person and nail them to a vertical post which also contained a horizontal post attached to it and that crossbeam in attaching by nails a person to those, that particular uh, structure, the Romans could inflict the most physical suffering and pain for the longest period of time a person could possibly endure it. It was horrendous. As a matter of fact, death by crucifixion was associated with that which was complete degradation. It was the worst of the worst. And indeed, that's why they utilized this particular form of capital punishment, is that they wanted to put to death the worst of the worst criminals and do so in utter shame and in utter intense agony trying to dissuade anyone from being involved in any of the kinds of awful crimes that these people have committed. So it's against this background that the early evangelists of Christianity 
are beginning to begin to proclaim a message about a Savior who was crucified, a King who was crucified. It's no wonder that they encountered a great deal of disdain, a great deal of rejection of this message of some kind of crucified King that you're presenting to us. And so as you read the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul in the first chapter there knows full well that there's much pressure being put upon him and others to somehow modify this unpopular message. A message that was clearly about Christianity uniquely, mentioning that it's about the divine accomplishment of what God has done in the person of Jesus Christ, who was crucified on a cross, laying down his life to save his people from their sins. And so Paul knew that his fellow Jews, when they heard this kind of a message, he knew that they were stumbling over such a message about the cross because they could not accept the claim that their Messiah would die in shame, helplessly, in utter uh, disdain on this cross. And so he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, they viewed such a message as offensive. Ugh, who could possibly imagine a Messiah dying in that way? And then Paul also alluded to the kind of mindset that uh, is found, by the way, you can see this allusion of his, the idea of stumbling over this in Galatians chapter 5, as Paul says in verse 11, just you go back one page there, he says, if I still preach circumcision, why am I still persecuted? Then the stumbling block of the cross has been abolished. It's a stumbling block. They trip right over it. They can't get past the idea of a Messiah on a cross. Of course, the non-Jewish population to whom Paul was trying to preach this unpopular message, how did they view this kind of anyone who trusted in a person who was put to death by means of crucifixion? Well, their view was there anyone who thinks this, anyone who gets some kind of, uh, of a loyalty to someone who's died in this way and they think that somehow this person is king or royal or something, they are a fool. The word there in Greek is moron. It means an ignoramus. A person who has no clue because the Greeks and the Romans were very much into philosophy and all kinds of lofty thinking and teaching. And the idea of a cross is something that just, come on, you got to get out of that kind of thinking and get into something that's much more sophisticated. So Paul himself had been one who was highly offended at this message of the cross at one time. He had been offended at the thought of a disgraced, crucified Messiah. And while he had zealously followed the traditions of what he had been taught by his ancestors, by the rabbis of his day, he had learned that the best way to preserve his Jewish heritage was to destroy all forms of organized allegiance to Jesus Christ, who died on this cross. And so in his way of thinking, Everyone proclaiming the message of Jesus crucified, buried, and risen again, those people needed to be silenced. Enough! What you're saying is highly offensive and inappropriate, and it is destroying any thought of the rightness of what we understand to be the true ways of God. Indeed, one of the reasons he was so determined to obliterate 
and silence these people is because he was offended by all this talk of being condemned for sin by one and somehow being rescued by one who himself was condemned. And so Paul boasted of his own religious zeal and performance. What led him to reverse his thinking? What got him to do an about face? Well, as you know the story, he was headed to Damascus. He's going to arrest some followers of Jesus. And what happens on that trip humbled him right down to his knees as he encountered the one who he hated, the one that he had blasphemed. It is Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He had always assumed that the Jesus of this Jesus of Nazareth was a fraud. He was now confronted by this Jesus who had died in shame, who had died in disgrace, and who now had been raised from the dead. And this Jesus that encountered him on that day, this crucified Jesus, is also the one who was master and who was Lord. And he calls to Paul and says, Paul, you are going to be my ambassador. You're going to be the one who represents me. You're going to proclaim my message. And so Paul was commissioned by Jesus the crucified, risen Lord and Savior. And he was told that he was now going to proclaim what he at one time had sought to destroy. Look at verse 14 of Galatians 6, and look at how Jesus, uh, look how Paul describes whose cross it is that he's boasting in. Notice the titles that he used. He mentions our Lord Jesus Christ. The, the name Jesus is indeed his given name, Yeshua. It comes from the root that means to save, to rescue. And if you know the story, of course, many of us do. Matthew 1, the angel tells Mary, you will call his name Jesus for he will save his people from his sins. That was his given name. That's the name that they gave to him. But the title Christ is a messianic title. It means, literally, the anointed one. Jesus is the Messiah promised in the Old Testament. And his redemptive work was predicted by the prophets. His, the types and all the shadows that were found in the Old Covenant were fulfilled in Jesus. And therefore, his death on that cross by way of crucifixion fulfills the idea of a spotless lamb the Lamb of God dying for the sins of the world. It's the rock that was struck which produced the life-giving water. It's the servant of God who bore the sins of His people. All these things are fulfilled in Jesus, the Christ, the Anointed One. But then Paul adds the real kicker. It must have been highly offensive for many people as well. The idea of Lord. Curios. It signifies the Supreme One. The one who is with authority. I appreciate hearing the song today of crown him with many crowns. Why would we crown this one? That's the one who is Lord is the one who is crowned. It is the one who is in elevated position of honor. And Jesus received that title because following his death by crucifixion, he was raised to life. And when he was raised to life through his resurrection, he was exalted as the supreme one the one who has absolute authority, absolute supreme position of honor. There is none higher than he. Philippians chapter 2 affirms that. And that's why Peter said 
in his message on the day of Pentecost, these amazing words, Acts 2.36. He says, Know this for certain, that the God has made Jesus both Lord and Christ. He is the supreme and high and lifted one who has authority. He also is the anointed one, the Messiah predicted in the Old Covenant. This Jesus whom you crucified. You see what Peter was saying? The one that we thought would never qualify for those things really indeed is the one that God has made clear is indeed the Lord and the Christ. Turn your hymnals to 554. Just for a second, 554. George Bernard has written some lyrics of a well-known song. It's about 100 years old. Notice what he writes. Oh, that rugged cross, 554. Oh, that rugged cross, so despised by the world. My friend Paul, when he wrote these comments in this epistle, this letter to the Galatians, there was so much, there was so much widespread thought of despising the cross, even today. Despised by the world. It has a wondrous attraction to me. For the dear Lamb of God left His glory above to bear it on dark Calvary. Look at verse 3. In the old rugged cross, stained with blood so divine, a wondrous beauty I see, for t'was on that old cross Jesus suffered and died and pardoned, to pardon and sanctify me. So I'll what? Cherish the cross. Rather than hate it, rather than despise it, rather than criticize it, rather than somehow wash my hands of it, I will cherish the old rugged cross. I will cling to the old rugged cross. It raises the question in my mind, what is your response to the cross today? Have you gotten past that surprise, the sense that you can actually now boast about something that in many people's minds is just incomprehensible? You see, the Christian faith is not a man-centered faith. It's not something that we have invented. It's not something that people like Paul made up and invented and somehow created out of their, their, their clever thinking. Christianity was, in, was indeed built upon the foundation of revealed truth. Truth that was revealed in a person of Jesus Christ in time and history. It also was revealed in, through the truth of God's apostles and his prophets. And what he reveals there, the truth is, it is a surprising revelation about God. It is not something that man's wisdom would have ever figured out or come out with some kind of theory proposing this as some way of solving our greatest problems. So my question on the first point is, are you offended by the cross? Does it offend your sensibilities? Or do you find yourself glorying in the cross the cross that revealed to us the greatness of God's grace, of God's love, God's mercy shown to us in His Son, Jesus Christ, as a remedy to our greatest problem. Indeed, it was surprising. But I want us to look at the second point here, and that is Paul, in making this statement in verse 14, 
of Galatians 6. It was an exclusive boast. Exclusive boast. There was a time in Paul's life when he gloried in his own accomplishments. He accomplished so many things apart from God because he did them himself. He performed a long list of prescribed rituals in accordance with all the rabbinical teachings and all these things he had learned as a child. And he was proud of his heritage. He was proud. If you look at Philippians 3, as we heard Keith read for us earlier, he listed a number of reasons why he thought his attainments had gained him merit before God. He was confident of it at one time. At one time, he had kept a, a mental ledger. It's a way of calculating things in his, in his mind, and we all do this on some level, but he had, he had come up with this mental ledger of profit on this side, losses on this side, as it relates to his standing before God and his religious achievements. On this side, he would calculate a long list of reasons as to why he could glory in all of his religious prophets, all of the things that were positive, all the things that were really to gain him further in, in understanding what it's right to be right with God. And he had earned these through his religious achievements. And he was convinced that this list was much longer than his list on this side, which were his deficits, his debits, his losses. What's on your list in your mental ledger? What do you glory in? What do you sort of rely on as your positive achievements that you're proud of? What do you rely on for your sense of identity, your sense of security, your sense of worth? All of us glory in something. All of us glory in someone. For many of us, it's our achievement on the field of competition. We love to tell our stories of how we hit that uh, home run in the bottom of the ninth or when we performed right when we needed to make that foul shot. We made the foul shot when we needed to. And they rehearse these stories for years and years and think about all those days of glory and the competition in which you manifested your abilities on the field of sports. Or perhaps it's in performing arts and you try to achieve some level of which you have mastered either singing or some sort of instruments you're playing or artwork or those things and or for others it's academics we, we put such a high value on our gpa and on the degrees that we earn and on the master on the ability of to master uh, knowledge other people attain find uh, that they've put all of their glory and what they've attained in terms of their popularity and they have so many friends they have so many people on their social web uh, connections with people. They're just connected to so many people. People know them, have, have all sorts of knowledge about them, and, and uh, people like them. Perhaps that's all gained by their appearance, and so they put so much emphasis on how they look and how they come across, or how funny they are, and how many people they can make laugh around them. Others of us boast in our girlfriend or our boyfriend, because then we have a, a sense of feeling that I am significant because look who's with me. Not just that I care about this person, but look what they do for me. They raise my status. Look who I'm associated with. And so we boast about that. That's our whole world is wrapped up in that. Other people find their greatest joy and security in our spouse. Or perhaps it's our children. We live for our children. They are everything. Our dreams are really lived through our children. Or perhaps it's our grandchildren. There could never be enough that we could do for our grandchildren. Some people glory in their financial status or their job, 
their job title. They have this particular position. They've been working their way up, 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 and they finally have attained what they've been longing for over all these years. And so they, they, they put such great sense of joy and satisfaction that comes through all that hard work, through all that diligence, through all that putting up all those years. All of us deep down treasure something. We treasure somebody that we are glorying in. Well, Paul, there came a moment in his life where he laid aside all of his self-glorying. He laid aside all of his boasting about himself, and he had only one boast, he says in verse 14. He says, may it never be that I should boast except in one thing, one thing and only one thing, the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, there came a time where the message of the cross helped Paul to understand that the deficit on his ledger was much longer than he relied. He was relying on this false sense of this ledger system of all the good things and the assets versus those that he called the debits. He came to understand those things that he boasted of were really idols in his heart. And those idols were taking the place that God deserved to have in his heart. And he renounced his attempts at self-salvation. He boasted in the cross for a number of reasons. Think about this. Why did Paul make this his exclusive boast and glory in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ? Well, I'll list several ideas here. There are many, many others. First of all, I could say that the cross reveals to us the treasures of God's amazing love. Paul wrote in Galatians 2.20, Crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet I, but Christ lives in me, and the life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me, who loved me, and gave himself for me. The cross revealed that to Paul. The cross also destroys the barrier that exists between us and a holy God. And it's the cross that provides reconciliation for those who are estranged from God. It is the cross that breaks down barriers between different ethnic groups and social groups within our world and creates a sense of oneness among people who have nothing else in common except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. It is the cross that provides a sufficient payment to God to satisfy the just demands of God so that we can know that we are fully and freely forgiven. It is the cross that provides the only real hope for overturning the curse of sin, overturning the brokenness of this world of woe and suffering and disease and war and death and lawlessness. It is the cross that is the only thing that gives us hope. It is the cross that assures us, Colossians chapter 2, that Jesus triumphed over the forces of evil. It is the cross is the only hope we have of gaining acceptance before God. It's no wonder that Paul rejected the popular messages of his culture. It's no wonder Paul then focused his ministry on one theme. Look back at 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2. Just turn back a couple pages. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2. One theme, one message. It's one thing that Paul kept proclaiming. It wasn't about himself. wasn't about trying harder. It wasn't about uh, trying to improve himself. 
He says, I determined to know, 1 Corinthians 2, 2, nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. My friend, may I say to you, I believe that the gospel of grace is the main thing. What are you most passionate about in your life? What would you say that you love to talk about the most in your life? What do you think about when you have moments to think and you're free, your, your mind is free to go in whatever direction you want to go and you're not obligated to focus on work or people around you? What, where does your mind go? What is the main thing? Indeed, it is the cross of Jesus Christ, the gospel of grace. I would like to commend again to you, some of you have read this, I would encourage you to reread again to let this message really ring true. It's called C.J. Mahaney's Living the Cross-Centered Life. It is a very excellent very practical, very uh, readable book. It's very small. You see the size of it. And there's only about, uh, I don't know, uh, 150 pages. You could easily do that. And some of you could read that in a day. Some of you could read that in a week. Some of you could read that in a month easily. The cross-centered life. Paul, that was the main focus of his life. Exclusively. I'd like to make one more thought here as we meditate on this wonderful text. Think about boasting or glorying in the cross Paul made. For him to to boast of the cross was a highly impactful boast. It had a huge impact in his life. If we fully embrace the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, if we boast only of Jesus and His complete and all-sufficient work, atoning work on the redemption on the cross, we will no longer rely on our merits, our performance, our ability to improve ourselves. All our vain attempts to earn merit before God are seen as worthless. And we will not glory in our Christian service. We will not glory in the fact that we are people who you know, boast in our baptism. We boast in our devotional habits. We, devote, we will boast in, our, in our, uh, uh, our theological orthodoxy. We won't even boast of our attendance at Sunday school. You say, what are you talking about? Years ago, I did a funeral for an elderly woman. There were two single women, sisters. They lived together, and, uh, uh, and this one died. And when she died, the one other sister handed me, said, I want you to have this. I said, what is it? It's in an envelope. And inside the envelope, I've got the pieces of it right here. I can't believe I still have it. But it was such an unusual thing, I thought to myself, this is really odd. And uh, you can hear it's, me- it's metal. It's actually a Sunday school pin, a Sunday school attendance pin. And it has a little round pin. You start with that, you pin that onto your clothes. And then each year, if you had perfect attendance, they would have these two little metal clips. You could add a little bar. It says, first year, perfect attendance. And then if you got another year of perfect attendance, you get a second year bar. And it keeps going. And uh, they gave this out when I was in Sunday school years ago. That's how old I am. But this woman apparently had very good health. And she has not 5 or 10 or 15. She had 19th year perfect attendance in Sunday school. And I thought it interesting that her sister hands this to me almost as if this is her greatest achievement. I want you to have it. I mean, I want to commend you for attending Sunday school. I think it's great. And I think it's something that many people have lost the habit of and have lost out on many benefits that can be derived through that. I want to urge you to make that part of your life. But what's the thing? 
The point is, if I have all these pins that go down and touch the floor, of look what I've accomplished, look what I actually did, it means nothing. It means nothing apart from Christ who did everything. He was perfectly obedient. He is the one who we rely on. He did what we cannot do for ourselves. To glory in the cross of Christ alone is to glory in Christ's merits alone. And the more we glory in Christ, in Jesus Christ, the more I'm convinced we will grieve over our pride. Paul looked back on his conversion. He looked back on his transformed life and he realized that there was nothing in his story that he could boast about in his life. So much so that he says all credit goes to God and His grace. Look back again to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and I want you to find verse 30. Look at this. Very interesting statement. There is no boasting in the Christian life about anything that you may have done, or you may have decided, or you may have surrendered, or you may have figured out. All the credit, all the glory goes to God through Jesus Christ, who was crucified, risen for us. Look at 1 Corinthians 1.30. Paul summarizes the perspective we gain if we make our boast of Christ and His cross. By God's doing, you are in Christ Jesus. It's not by your doing. It's by God's doing that you're a believer, you're a Christian. Why is that? Because Jesus became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that just as it is written, let him who boasts boast in themselves. No, we're going to boast in the Lord because look what he's done. He's the one who, bring, who made it clear that my heart was becoming convicted by sin. It is Christ who opens my eyes and helped me understand the, the, the depths of my sin and desperation and the glories of Christ. It is Christ who gave me a new heart and a new desires and new uh, 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 thoughts about who I am and what he, what he is all about and what he's called me to do in this world. It's all about Christ. Similarly, if you look in the same book, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, because Paul is trying to attack the problem of pride that was dividing the church at that time, he says in chapter 4 that those who are struggling with these things, you shouldn't be bragging about yourself. He says this, what do you have that you did not receive? In other words, it's all been given to you. And if you did not receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? In other words, what's this sense of boasting and becoming arrogant? You've got something somebody else doesn't have. Everything you have is given to you by God. It's all a gift. And when Paul listed all these privileged, all the ones who were privileged to see Jesus after his resurrection from the dead, and when he lists himself among all the others who had been eyewitnesses of the resurrected Christ, he sees himself as the least of the apostles, because so many years of his earlier life he spent trying to destroy the church, trying to arrest Christians and have them punished and try to destroy anybody who's a follower of Jesus. And so he, this is the way he views himself. 1 Corinthians 15. The effect of the cross in its high impact on his life is it affect his view. He says, I am who I am. He doesn't say, because I work hard. I am who I am because I make good decisions. I am who I am because I'm smarter than the average guy. I am who I am because I've learned how to use money and I've become a person who's now successful. No, he says, I am who I am because of what? The grace of God. The unmerited favor God has shown me. 
See, that's what the cross of Christ does. It just knocks any kind of pride out of your life, out of your way of looking at yourself. John Stott says this, The cross is the blazing fire at which the flame of our love is kindled. But we have to get near enough for its sparks to fall on us. I want to read that again. You say, well, why is my love for Christ and my sense of, of, of this idea of I'm not as humble as I need to be? He says, the, lo- the, the cross is the blazing fire at which the flame of our love is kindled, love for God. But we have to get near enough to the sparks to fall on us. So the more we meditate on the cross, the more we think and, and wonder and celebrate the cross, the more we are, in a sense, our hearts are, are turned toward God and made to want to serve Him and love Him and to not be walking in pride. One final thought here, and I, this is not fair to even tack this on here so quickly, but I've at least acknowledged the end of verse 14. Paul says, The world has been crucified to me through the cross and I to the world. Glorying in the cross of Christ dethrones the power of the world. The lure and the attraction of the world apart from Christ is lessened in a big, big way if we really hang on and celebrate the cross of Christ. The world cannot lastingly provide what we really need and what we want, and the things that our hearts are yearning for cannot sufficiently be supplied in this world which is just fading away. Nothing this world offers lasts. I'm talking about the world system apart from Christ. Nothing this world offers lasts. Let me tell you something. This lesson has been driven home to me in a new and fresh and vital way in going through my father-in-law's affairs. Every last item he possessed, we're trying to figure out what to do with all these things, how to properly put them in hands so people can use them. And while we grieve, and while it's a very difficult time in life to deal with all the practical realities of that, it has been a powerful lesson. What are you glorying in? He was a great swimmer. He was an incredible swimmer. From his early years, as a lifeguard in the Marines, he swam in the YMCA and travel teams. He had medals after medals after medals with more medals. He had so many medals that he's a senior, senior citizen. He was competing as a senior in the uh, Olympics of uh, states, Maryland, uh, Texas, and uh, uh, even in the National uh, Senior Olympics, he would swim. And every time he competed, he would beat, win something. And he had so many of these medals on ribbons that we hung them on, a, on a, uh, a curtain rod in his bedroom. One right after the other, after the other, after the other. I mean, there must have been about 50 of them on there. And when the AC would come on, they'd all just tinkle, they'd all just sort of bang against each other and make this little almost like a a chimes. But guess what? He left them all behind. You can't take it with you. There is no glory you bring with you into the world to come. And so the world and all that it promises us, the world that keeps saying, oh, what's really valuable is riches. What's really valuable is having beauty, looking so good on the outside. It's a lie. You're going to get wrinkles. I don't care how many surgery, how many Botox you get, it's still going to, I'm sorry, it's going to sag, it's going to look aged, you're going to get brown spots. It's going to happen. Achievements, 
One generation might sing sing your praise, but soon you'll be forgotten. People will not even know your name, your social standing, your success. None of those things will last beyond the grave. Here's the point. Nothing that the world promotes is capable of resolving the real struggles, the real problems that we find in our world today. It can only be found in Jesus Christ, who transforms people's hearts and lives from the inside out and gives us true, lasting peace with God, joy through the Holy Spirit, and hope that is beyond this world. The cross of our Lord Jesus Christ is our only hope, it is our only remedy, it is our only reason to boast, it is indeed at the heart of Christianity. And so my question is, may the cross of Christ, will it be a wellspring of joy in your heart, in your life, even this week, in your mind? Will it be the theme song of the doxology of praise that you sing over and over and over again in this world and when you're finally with Christ in the world to come? There is nothing else to sing about but the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, I believe it would be an awful shame if we go through this service today and have some here only hear about the cross, but never respond to the message of the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Lord, I pray today that if there's someone here who has never really stopped to consider the fact that all of their mental ledger, all of their good works that they somehow in their mind have thought would be maybe heavier or longer list, then all of their deficits and all their failings, Lord, I pray that you would help them to abandon that even today. And I pray that they might embrace Christ by faith and trust in what he has done flawlessly, perfectly, keeping the law, and then dying in the place of those who failed to keep the law and providing eternal life as a gift received by faith and faith alone. Lord, I pray that you would cause anyone whose heart is here today and who is never really filled with a sense of wonder and amazement and glorying in Christ and his cross. I pray that today, Lord, they would have the eyes of their hearts open and that they would begin to see it so clearly and so wonderfully and in such a life-changing way. And Lord, for many of us who have perhaps known these themes for a long time, who've known this message, Lord, I pray that you would in a fresh way apply it to us. Help us in our struggle with our own pride. Help us, Lord, in our attempts to try to somehow get on your good side, become worthy of your love. Lord, help us to cast all that aside. Help us to embrace the cross. Help us to claim the grace that we receive through Christ on that cross. And Lord, fill us with a joy that is unspeakable, a joy that is uncontainable, a joy that is never ceases, no matter what we're going through. Lord, help us to celebrate the glory in you and in your wonderful salvation wrought on the cross of when you died in such misery and shame. Lord, help us to make that our boast this week. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.